Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Doug Espy, and yeah, I'm one of the pastoral staff here at Restoration Church. Um, today, we have a very solemn privilege together of examining the trial of Jesus before Pilate. Now, I don't know about you, but I've spent a fair bit of time of my life in church, and I was wondering today, how am I going to bring a message on the trial of Pilate to people who are probably very, very familiar with it? So, what did I do? Well, you do what you always do in these situations. I went to Google, and I googled Pontius Pilate. First thing that arrived, right at the top of Google, Saint Pontius Pilate. Sainted by the Egyptian Coptic Church with a feast day on June the 25th. Now, at that moment, I knew this was going to be interesting and that there was a lot behind it. And after today, I think that you are going to see Pilate, um, his trial, the Jewish leaders, and even Jesus differently. And many of your pre-existing views may be reinforced. Others may be forever altered. Um, But my prayer is that as we engage this surprising, gritty time in Jesus' life, you're going to see Jesus' faithfulness, both to his mission and to you today. So to start with, um, I'm going to mix it up a fair bit. Um, The good news is that the Gospels, all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they all record this trial. I'm going to be mixing and matching from the different trials, uh, different accounts, because like all authentic eyewitness accounts, there's different angles from the same event. And by combining them together, you get a full picture. So that's what I'm going to be doing today, um, to give out some additional detail. Now, to begin with, for those of you who were last week, you might remember that Jesus has already had a trial. He's already been trialed before basically a kangaroo court. It was a court that was convened in the middle of the night, which is illegal under Jewish laws, because most people are asleep. You can get away with a lot in the dark that you can't get away with in the light. So the Jewish leaders convene this trial. It's illegal. They sentence him to death. Again, illegal, because the Jews have lost the ability to execute anyone by this stage under Roman occupation. So the Jews now need to figure out how they're going to legally murder Jesus. So what do they do? They go to the Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. Now, they take him to Pontius's palace. Now, I'm going to ask if we could go to the first Bible verse. You have to see this. Check this out. The Jewish leaders take Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. And look at this next verse. By now it's early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to, able to, to be able to eat the Passover. To avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they don't step into um, Pilate's palace. They're about to legally murder someone. And yet there they are, worried about ceremonial uncleanness. How much do you truly think they care about God's law at this stage? And yet they put on the veneer. And you will keep seeing this veneer as we go further on in this trial. This veneer of holiness. This veneer of justice. It's a sham trial. Now... The Jewish leaders call for Pilate. It's early in the morning, about 6 a.m. Most Roman governors are already awake by this time. They did a lot of their work even earlier. So a servant would have come in to Pilate and said, the Jewish leaders are here. And I would pay money to see Pilate's face when he heard that. Because you see, Pilate and these Jewish leaders, this isn't the first time they've met. 
they actually have some extensive history together that you don't read about in the Bible. For example, when Pontius Pilate first rolled in, only a few years earlier, he was a bit wet behind the ears, a bit green as a governor, and he wanted to stamp his authority. So what did he do? He came into Jerusalem carrying the Roman eagles. You may have seen these in movies or books. The Roman eagles, the Roman standards. Those banners were considered idolatrous by the Jews. So Pilate, to show his authority, he comes in at night with the standards, erects them throughout the city, and waits for dawn. Dawn arrives, and there is an uproar in the city as suddenly the populace awakens to these idolatrous standards in their city. And they're mad. They're really mad with this new governor, whoever he is. And they get together as a large crowd and they tell him to take it down, take it down. And he says, no, I'm not going to. I am the Roman governor. I am your governor and I will not take them down. And, they, and the Jewish crowds just hound him. And eventually he actually leaves and goes to Caesarea, which is a long, long way away. And the crowds follow him. Take it down, take it down. And for days they protest outside his palace. Take it down, take it down. And eventually Pilate gets so sick of it, he summons them to an arena. And he gets them all in there under the pretense of them um, being of, of them presenting their case and Pilate listening. So they all go, yeah, yeah, we'll go, if he's willing to listen to us. So they all pile into the arena. Pilate surrounds it with soldiers and he tells them all, I'm not here to listen to you. You're going to listen to me. If you don't go home right now, my soldiers are going to kill you all. And the crowd's response? Well, they bared their necks. And they said, all right then, kill us. We are not leaving until their standards come down. They called his bluff. And Pilate, humiliated, had to back down. The standards came down, and Pilate's reputation went very down, especially for a new governor. But Pilate has his revenge. Because a few years later, he wants to build an aqueduct. The Jews themselves um, can't pay for it. So he takes money out of their temple, their offering monies, to pay for the aqueduct. The Jews are incensed. They come as a crowd again. But this time, Pilate's ready. This time, he's got soldiers hidden in the crowd, disguised. And at a predetermined moment, when the crowd gets especially feisty, they throw off their cloaks, pull out their batons and just start hitting people all around them and the, there's many broken bones that day not even a few there was a, quite a few fatalities as well and Pilate thinks that he showed them that he's boss that he's done it and a few years after that event the Bible actually records that um, Pilate mixed the blood of some of the Jewish people who were uh, giving their sacrifices he mixed their blood with the sacrifice which sounds like he probably killed them while they were doing their holy duties so that's the relationship that Pilate has with these Jewish leaders. That's the history going on as Pilate walks out. And from a distance, you can also see Jesus. And you're guaranteed he knows about Jesus as well after the last few years, right? Especially considering the triumphal entry, the kingly entry of Jesus into Jerusalem just a few days earlier. Pilate goes right in front of the Jews and he has the customary words that you always utter at a trial. He says to the Jewish leaders, what charge do you bring against these men? And the Jews completely ignore his question. And you know why, because of the history. They completely ignore it. And they say, if 
this man wasn't guilty. We wouldn't have brought him to you, Pilate. Pilate says, well, what is that to me? Go take him, judge him by your own law then. And they said, we can't because we don't have the authority to execute anyone. And so at that moment, Pilate knew what sort of day this was going to be. This is a life and death day that's going to happen. So from there, the Jews fabricate three quick charges off the top of their heads that they know is going to get his attention. First, they say, we found this man, Jesus, subverting our nation. He tells people not to pay taxes to Caesar and he calls himself a king. Pilate quickly runs a mental inventory through this. First two uh, charges are vague or refutable. Subverts the nation? That's super vague. I don't have to worry about that. Um, tells people not to pay taxes? I, I would have heard about that as the Roman governor if Jesus was doing that. That's refutable. But that third one, that third one about being a king, that sounds a lot like treason. And there is no higher crime in the Roman mind than treason. Emperor Tiberius at the time was paranoid about, tre- about treason and this idea. And Pilate's career has already taken a hit. It's already on the line. So he has to follow up with this third charge, this claim to be a king. Pilate's simple and direct, like most Roman governors. Are you the king of the Jews? He says to Jesus. And Jesus' response is rather cryptic, as often Jesus does. Jesus says to him, You have said I am. You have said I am. Um, there's been a lot of debate about what those words mean. Recent consensus is Jesus is basically doing a yes, but sort of answer. It's sort of like when someone says something and you go, yeah, you're kind of right, but you're kind of wrong. That's what Jesus was saying. You, you can't, it's like the ancient equivalent. You're kind of right, but you're kind of wrong. And Pilate knows this is, this is going to get complex. So he t- says, Jesus, come with me. And he takes Jesus into the palace away from accusing mouths and prying eyes. And he asks him again, he says, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And in that private place, Jesus says to him, is that something you think? Or is that something someone's told you about me? Now, answering a question with the question. But Pilate can do this game too. So Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own people have handed you over to me. What have you done? And now Jesus starts to answer a bit more directly. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my followers would have fought to stop me being handed over to you. But my kingdom is of another place. To this, Pilate says, so you are a king then? And Jesus says, I've come here to testify to the truth. Everyone who's on the side of truth believes in me. Now, you guys are all used to Jesus saying words like that because you know your Bible and you think Jesus talks like that all the time and he does. Pilate's never heard that sort of thing before. And I want you to imagine what would happen if someone actually said those words to you. If you're at work and someone with a completely straight face says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Completely straight face. You'd probably laugh, right? Or at the dinner table, even worse. Someone in your family. Everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of like a nervous laugh when you hear someone say something like that, if they've got a completely straight face. 
But if they kept on saying it over and over again, you might either think they're actually insane or that um, you probably get kind of angry at them. Because no one, no human being, no one in this room certainly, would claim to be truth incarnate. And it is an almost incomprehensible level of arrogance to claim that sort of thing. Unless it's true. Unless it's true. So how does Pilate respond? Well, it's, it sounds rather dismissive. As soon as Jesus says that, Pilate himself just goes, what is truth? What is truth? And he brings Jesus out to, in front of the Jewish leaders and he says, and this is the customary end of a trial, it's what you say, I find no basis for the charges that you have laid against this man. Trial over. Done. But the Jews don't move an inch. They say to him, this man has come from Galilee and he has been bringing his teaching and upsetting the whole place all the way to today. Now Pilate's got a way out. Because they said the magic word, Galilee. And Galilee is under King Herod's jurisdiction. King Herod is a puppet king that the Romans have set up. And Pilate says, oh, well, since you're from Galilee, King Herod can deal with you. And he sends Jesus off to King Herod. Now, King Herod is in Jerusalem at this time because it's Passover. And when King Herod hears from a servant that Jesus is at the door, Herod's actually quite excited. He's wanted to see Jesus for a long time. He's heard all about these miracles and the spiritual teacher, and he's got so many questions. So when Jesus comes in, I would imagine Herod would get less and less excited because this is not a social call. There's a whole bunch of those Jewish leaders following him. And they're ranting and raving. And they're angry. This is actually more of a judgment sort of thing. So um, Herod asked lots of questions to Jesus. Spiritual questions? Probably. Are these accusations true? Probably. And Jesus doesn't answer a word. Eventually, um, because I imagine Herod gets bored and his soldiers get bored, they start to taunt Jesus. Sort of like little children who like to tease people when they don't get a reaction. And they start taunting Jesus and they go, Oh, King of the Jews! And they put a purple robe on him, the colour of royalty, because he's not saying anything, it's kind of boring. Send him back, send him back to Pilate. And they do. Jesus goes back wearing his purple robe as a mockery. And from then on, the scripture says that Pilate and Herod actually became friends. Why? How is that a friendship thing? Well, a few years ago, Herod and Pilate had a blue. A few years ago, Pilate had gone into Herod's palace and set up all these big shields. Now, presumably on these shields, there were maybe some inscriptions, maybe inscriptions of people that Pilate wanted to honor. And Herod hated having those shields in his palace. And he told Pilate to take those shields down. And Pilate refused. And it went back and forth, back and forth. And eventually Herod complained to Pilate's superiors. Pilate's superiors told Pilate to take those shields down. And Pilate, again humiliated, has to take the shields down. There was bad blood there. But because Pilate had sent Jesus to Herod, Herod saw that as a sort of a, you know, like a reconciliation gift. And they became friends from then on. Now that Jesus was back... Pilate's starting to feel a little bit exhausted, I imagine. His first trick to sort of get rid of Jesus um, is no longer working. 
It's not working. But he does have a trick up his sleeve. Because you see, it's Passover. And at Passover, Pilate does something very magnanimous to everyone. He lets one prisoner go that the crowd chooses. He does this every year. It makes him look merciful and it makes the crowd feel like they're heard. So Pilate, I don't know if there's an any meeny miny mo going on here, but I'm sure he looked at his prisoners and he said, Barabbas, bring out Barabbas. The crowd is still wanting to have Jesus punished or killed. And Pilate brings out Barabbas and says, who do you want me to release? Because it's that time of year. Barabbas or Jesus? And this is the only time in the entire narrative that the crowd actually slows down, that their bloodlust actually cools a bit. Because Barabbas was a murderer. He murdered someone during a recent insurrection. It is possible that he is meant to be the third person on the cross in a few hours' time. So who does the crowd want released back into their community? The murderer or Jesus? So, while they're murmuring and trying to figure this out, Pilate receives a message. It's from his wife. And his wife sends a message and says, don't have anything to do with that innocent man because I have suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Now, Romans took a lot of stock in dreams and omens. So Pilate's really hoping that the crowd's going to pick, release Jesus, keep Barabbas, crucify Barabbas. And instead, you all know what happens, right? Barabbas, Barabbas, we want Barabbas. The crowd starts calling this out. Why? Because the chief priests of the law had infiltrated the crowd and they turned the crowd's minds against Jesus and about how it wouldn't be too bad to get a murderer compared to Jesus back in. Why? Why do you want Barabbas? No response. What should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him, the crowd begins to chant. Why? What crime has he done? Says Pilate. Crucify him. And the crowd just gets louder. Pilate's only got one thing left up his sleeve right now. One last thing. It's a bloodthirsty crowd. Maybe he can satiate their thirst for blood with blood. So he orders Jesus to be flogged. Now there's a bit of debate about whether or not um, Jesus was flogged once or twice during his trial. Um, I would very tentatively land on the idea that Jesus was flogged twice. This first flogging, well the Romans had three different kinds of floggings. The first was for minor offences. The second was for like medium level offences. And they increase in intensity, the floggings. And the last one is severe. It's either meant to kill you or get you ready for crucifixion because it's so serious. The way Romans would flog people was effective and brutal. They would tie up the victim or in some way, expose their back, and they would have two um, what's called lictors, which are basically torturers. One on one side, one on the other side. One would whip from that side, the other would whip from that side, and they just go. There's no limits. Go. Now, I would believe, again, tentatively, that Jesus probably received at this stage a flogging probably of the first level or second level intensity, you know, minor to medium. Um, It it would have been horrible, no matter how you see it. He was flogged and the um, soldiers there twisted together a crown of thorns, probably from a type of date palm that grows in that area that is quite sharp and thorny, twisted it together, they put it on Jesus' head, 
They mock him. Oh, hail, king of the Jews. And they slap him, Scripture says. The flogging is severe enough that, even though it wasn't the worst, it was severe enough that Pilate brings Jesus out again in front of the crowd. And there's something in, in the composure of Jesus. There's something in the way that he's moving that can tell the crowd, even from a distance, that he's been hurt, he's been flogged. And Pilate says, behold the man. In other words, look at him. He's obviously been punished badly. And the Jews' response, does it quieten them? No. It actually energizes the demonic energy to greater intensity that's already flowing through the crowd. And they scream louder, crucify him, crucify him. Why? What has he done? Says Pilate for I think the fifth time. And they refuse to answer. And you see, at this stage, um, the Jewish leader says, we have a law and according to his law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And then the scripture says, Pilate became even more afraid. Why? There's an angry crowd in front of him. And who is this man next to him? You see, Pilate's not a Jew, but he's a Roman. He has a supernatural worldview. And the fact that there is something supernatural going on, and maybe he's just flogged a supernatural being, makes a lot of sense. Think about it. The demonic rage in the crowd, the hate, the anger, and Jesus, who has been so calm throughout the whole thing. I mean, if you think about it, the person who should be the most irrational, the most emotional is the person who's about to lose their life. But Jesus has been the calmest one this whole time. And he keeps talking about his other kingdoms. And he starts having these heavenly visions that he keeps mentioning. So Pilate now takes Jesus again away from the crowd and has one final one-on-one conversation with him. Pilate's out of options. He's out of options. He looks at him and he says, Who are you? Who are you? And Jesus doesn't say a word. Pilate says, why are you not answering me? Don't you realize that I have the ability to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus has a simple one-sentence response. The only power you have over me is the power that's been given to you from above. And therefore, the one who's handed me over to you is worthy of a greater sin. Again, Jesus is taking Pilate's perspective and making it bigger. He's giving Jesus the, uh, Pilate the bigger perspective. But it's not enough. Pilate takes Jesus out in front of the crowd, and, and the crowd gets louder and louder, and like a bulldog latching on, they know the right words to say. They say that, um, if you let this man go, Pilate, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. If Pilate doesn't give in right now, he's going to have a riot on his hands. And he's going to have a riot during the most dangerous time of year. With The city is full of Jews who are militant and who are angry. And Pilate, he doesn't even live in Jerusalem. He lives in Caesarea. The only reason he's come here today and for these last couple of days is because the city is so dangerous already and he needs to be on hand if anything breaks out. And he's got a riot right in front of him. And what happens if these people riot? If they riot, word will come to Caesar that Pilate let a man go 
who claimed to be a king. The Romans have no category for a king who is not in military opposition to Caesar. So Pilate would look treasonous. So it's his career, possibly his life in danger, but he can free an innocent man or he can give in and let an innocent man be killed. He has to make a decision. Time's up. And he does. Pilate steps up and to the Jewish leaders, he exclaims, enough! I have been sickened by today's proceedings. He looks them right in the eye and he says, this is a day of shame upon you and your entire system. Your revolting, barely hidden plans to kill this innocent man will be forever remembered and it's going to sicken the hearts of anyone who ever hears of it. Turning over to the Jewish crowd, the people, the common man, he says, you fools, you are blind fools. You almost killed an innocent man today. You listen to everything that your leaders tell you in your blind hysteria. You need to go home now before my soldiers disperse you back to your homes forcefully. And turning to Jesus in a much more quieter voice, Pilate says, you are free to go. Take a hundred soldiers and they will escort you to wherever you need to go. And may I never see your face again. Is that what really happened? No. Because justice didn't win on this day. In reality, as the riot began to start, Pilate stepped up. But he took a bowl of water and he washes his hands in front of everyone symbolically. And he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. This man's blood is the responsibility of you to the crowd. And the crowd concurs. The crowd says, this man's blood will be on us and on our children and on our children. And then Pilate delivers Jesus over to be crucified. That's what actually happened. And as the angry, bloodthirsty mob begins to disperse, another crowd begins to form. It's a crowd of soldiers, professional soldiers. About maybe 500, 600 in the barracks and they come to watch Jesus get flogged. He's going to get flogged and it's going to be that third kind of flogging, the kind of flogging that's designed to weaken you severely before crucifixion. Many people were killed inadvertently before they were crucified due to this third level of flogging. Um, Historians spoke of it as a horrible, disgusting event for those who'd seen it. No true Roman should ever set eyes on this. Um, Victims often you could see their bones um, because of the exposure that was given and you could even see their eternal organs from behind. That's how bad this was. Jesus endured this third flogging He survived this third flogging. And then the soldiers began to have their real fun. They began to, once again, grab their crown of thorns. They placed it on his head. They put a robe on him. You're getting flashbacks yet? Put a robe on him. Oh, hail, king of the Jews. And they strike him over and over again with a royal scepter, a a reed or a stick. Intriguingly, as they do this, an author has pointed out that these Soldiers are ironically testifying to a truth that's quite hidden to them. Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! 
there before them, shivering from blood loss, is the king of the Jews, is the king. He's not a king with an earthly army. He's not a king who loves, uh, well, he is a king who loves rather than exploits others. He's a king who doesn't instantly pronounce death on anyone who publicly mocks him. This king is so far outside of their experience that all they can do is mock. All they can do is mock. They have no idea. Another writer says, So powerful is the kingdom of heaven that it reaches down even into the hate-filled minds and the venomous lips of its foes, drawing unwitting testimony from those who look without seeing. Drawing unwitting testimony from those who look without seeing. Jesus subverts our view, even today, of what a king should look like. When you think of a man with an agonized face who is barely standing, does that elict your admiration or your pity? Contrast him to you and I. Jesus could call thousands of angels down at any given time. But what if you had that ability? And what if you were there on that day? How long would it take before you break? Is it the third insult? The first lash? The tenth lash? How long before you break? It wouldn't be long for me. But I know for Jesus, He is so strong and He is so faithful to what calls Him to. He doesn't only push on through that. He defies the pressures that come with walking down that lonely trail. He defies the pressures of being crucified, nailed alive to a piece of wood and left to die. And he rises again. And he ascends to heaven. And Jesus subverts our idea of what a king's heart should be. You look at just a few months or so, well, a month or so later at Pentecost, Peter is speaking of Jesus' heart. He's speaking to a crowd of people. And there's enough people in that crowd who are likely present at Jesus' trial that Peter can look them all in the eye and say, you killed the Messiah. There was enough people in this crowd that he could say to the crowd, you killed the Messiah. And the crowd, knowing it's true, were cut to the heart, the Bible says, and they cry back to him, what can we do to be saved? And Peter doesn't say, nothing. You will await your punishment on judgment day. And then exit stage left. No, Peter looks at them and says, you need to repent and be baptized. What's he getting at? He's pointing out Jesus' heart. Jesus is willing to accept back those who screamed for his death. Jesus is willing to accept back anyone. Anyone. And if he's willing to do that for those who screamed for his death, then how much more so is it going to be for anyone here today? No one here screamed for his death. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what your background is. Maybe you've got a background in the New Age or the occult. Maybe you're a backslidden Christian. Um, Maybe you're one of those self-righteous people. And you believe, deep down, that your deeds are going to merit you heaven. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're wrapped up in. If you acknowledge that Jesus is the king of this universe... And, the, and your personal king, and you trust that it's his good deeds, not your good deeds, that'll get you to heaven, you can be reconciled to him. You can be accepted back. He accepts everyone 
Look even at the soldiers, those soldiers and what they did. If you've been involved in shameful group dynamics, if you've been involved in bullying or purposefully cultivating a toxic work environment or home environment, Jesus' arms aren't closed to you. Jesus is open to that. Jesus is open to you as well. Even if you've been involved in some dark or even unspeakable things, if you've served in the armed forces or in the police service, you're not outside Jesus' forgiveness. The highest court in existence, the heavenly court, will deal with that as vertical dimensions of your sin. This doesn't mean that nothing changes in our lives, but it does mean that Jesus is powerful enough and loving enough to accept all types of people with all types of history and to walk with us, with you, with me, towards renewal. That's his heart today. That's his faithfulness. And lastly, Jesus' kingly goodness towards you also extends towards your suffering. Everyone here, myself included, are a combination of sufferer and evildoer. We suffer and, and we've committed evil. And Jesus promises, though, to walk with us in our suffering. In fact, if you read Acts, you will hear Jesus talking to a persecutor of Christians. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus so closely identifies with his people that the persecution of Christians is a persecution of him. That's how he sees it. He weeps with those who weep. He mourns with those with mourn, who mourn. He knows the agony of physical pain. He knows the anguish of rejection and loss. And yet he stands there with his arms around us in our pain. He is so faithful to God the Father. And he will not bail out on you in your moment of need. He'll never go have to deal with his own issues and abandon you and yours. He's that good. He's that faithful. So how will you respond to who Jesus is today? How will you respond to this? Because you see, Pilate had one response, and it's safe to say that his response and the day itself is one that he'll, he never forgot, especially after hearing stories about Jesus rising from the dead. History tells us that a few years after this trial, Pilate killed a bunch of Samaritans who may or may not have been armed. He was recalled to Rome to answer for his actions, and then he was exiled to Gaul, or modern-day France. Some accounts say that while in exile, burdened with the lost governorship, maybe burdened with the death of Jesus, Pilate took his own life. Yet other sources have said that when exiled to Gaul, Pilate lived out semi-retirement as a Christian. Saint Pilate. The question of who Jesus was, was a haunting one for Pilate. And the question remains in 2023. Who do you, who do you say he is? What will your story look like in the history annals of heaven with you and Jesus? Make it a good one. Make it a good one. Make it a story where your life and Jesus' intersect and he is your rescuer and he is faithful to you and you experience him for yourself. Make it a story that lives day by day, trusting in the king's faithfulness. Because that's the sort of king he is. And that's the king who's calling you today, 
deeper with him. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the faithful king. And I don't think any of us fully understand exactly how faithful you are. Whenever we think we know, you're more faithful than that. So I thank you for this, Jesus. I thank you that you were faithful all those years ago on that horrible day. And I thank you that you are faithful today. And I thank you will always be faithful. Lord Jesus, if we're not Christians, draw us to yourself. If we are Christians here in this room, show us more of your faithfulness, Lord. And I thank you that you're going to keep walking with us every day. Help us to go deeper in relationship with you, knowing that you're worth it and knowing that you're faithful in your name. Amen.